Well, let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Father, help us now as we look at your word. Help us, God, to know the truth, apply this truth to our hearts. And Father, may you do your work in us. Thank you for all that you're doing, for your glory in and through this church. And Father, we are humbled to be here and see what you're doing. Thank you, God. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we saw Paul in the city of Ephesus, and we saw him come, combat some people who were trying to exercise demons for money. They thought Jesus' name could be used as a magic word and that they could profit from it. We all saw what happened to those men. They left beat up and wounded and naked as they ran out after they lost the battle against this demon-possessed man. The whole city sees this and gives the glory to God. And a fear of God sweeps across the city so that there's transformation that's happening now in the city of Ephesus. For example, if you look at verse 18 with me, After this happened and those demon-possessed man beat up these other men, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Here, after this event of the sons of Sceva running pantless out of their room, gospel transformation begins to happen in Ephesus. People come to a knowledge of faith in Jesus Christ as King and as Messiah. And this is evidenced by their transformed lives. For example, last week we saw in this passage, in the passage we just read, that those who had also practiced magic arts burned their books. And even those who didn't believe in God were so fearful of God's glory and what they just witnessed that they also burned their books. This is because a fear of God produces holiness and repentance and drives people to faith in Jesus Christ. It's repentance that is leading transformation in the city. It's repentance that is the fruit of the gospel in our heart to show that something actually has happened. This past week, as I met with Trevor and when I met with Damon, I heard their testimonies as they desired baptism. And I listened closely to see how their lives have changed. How has their lives been transformed since they believed in Christ? And there was evidence in both of them as far as repentance of uh, their sin and turning to Christ. That is evidence that we truly are in Him. If your life is still the same way as it was before you believed, then you probably haven't believed. There always is a change that happens. And as a result of this change in the city, of course, we're in 19 chapters now of Acts. What we have seen repeatedly is that whenever something good happens, there's always opposition that arises. 
The evil one is always trying to, um, to dissuade people and to cause confusion against the work of God. And this is what happens in Ephesus. Look at verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. What begins to happen in Ephesus is what Luke describes for us is a disturbance, a disruption. Specifically, what was causing the disturbance was the way. Now, we've said before that that description of the way is used of Christians. It's a way that they use to describe who believers were. Why? Because their message was clear. Jesus is the way. So they decided to call them, oh, that's the way, church. That's the way. Those people are of the way. And so it was the way who was causing a disturbance in the city of Ephesus. And so what do you have? In verse 20, you have the word of God continuing to increase and prevail mightily. And then in verse 23, you have Christians in Ephesus that are then seen as the problem. Because what they are preaching and teaching and living is disrupting the way that the city runs. It's amazing. It's a good thing when Christians are the problem of a wicked city, isn't it? That they should cause a disturbance to be felt. Should the word of God and the people of God's presence be felt in a city? Absolutely. If we are obeying God, standing and proclaiming for truth, you could expect there to be a disturbance. If we were to throw a rock in a still pond, you would expect there to be what? A splash and a ripple. You can't throw a rock in a pond, a still pond, and not see the effects of it. The rock causes a disturbance, and the water is no longer still. And that's the problem with many Christians today. The problem with most Christians today is that we are more concerned about being seen as nice and friendly and cooperative for the sake of getting along with one another. But that is not biblical Christianity. Paul didn't go into Ephesus to make friends with people. Paul went into Ephesus to preach Christ crucified and risen again. And to call sinners to repentance. That causes a disturbance. It causes a disturbance when 50,000 shekels worth of silver are burned in a day of magic books. As we said last week, that is 137 years worth of labor for the typical worker back then. I'm not saying that Christians are called to be jerks. There are plenty of Christians that are jerks, and we all know that. God has not called us to be a nuisance or obnoxious. If you're doing that, that's just sinful. If you're just being a nuisance or obnoxious on purpose... That's not what God has called you to be. But God has caused you to be a truth bearer. To speak truth into a dark and wicked world. And you could do that and be really nice. And guess what? You'll still cause a disturbance. Because it's the truth that offends. The truth always divides. This is where 
the division is made. Biblical Christianity is not just playing nice with everyone so everyone gets along and we don't offend anyone. Don't purposely offend someone by being a jerk, but offend them by all means with the truth. Because that's what God has called us to be and do and become. As the Spirit of God dwells in us, and we are obedient to Him and His Word, yeah, there should be a disturbance in that city. The problem is that many churches and Christians like to take the least splashy route possible. They try to embrace things of the world, and in embracing the world, they just isolate the world from Christ. That is why today, today, in the, especially in the last two or three years, especially over the last decade, you can see some professing Christians moving on issues such as abortion or homosexuality or gender. Why? Because those things are offensive. And disturbing. But if God has said it, if God has proclaimed it, and God has set up his law as a school teacher to teach people that they are apart from him, then by all means, we need to preach law. Because the same God who gave the law also gave the gospel. But rather, some would rather entertain cities to Christ. They'd rather get smoke machines and fog lights and lights and lasers and just make Jesus look cool and hip and relevant. And maybe that's the best path forward. But that's not biblical Christianity. That's not at all what we see Paul doing. Paul preaches the word. When you shine the light on a dark world, we've said this before, you could expect the roaches to scatter. A disturbance will be felt. And so anyway, Luke writes, there was no little disturbance, which basically means big disturbance. Big waves are happening here in Ephesus. Now why? Paul and the believers are preaching the gospel. Repent and believe in Christ. Forsake your sin. Run to him. Hmm. A disturbance will be felt when truth is spoken. When truth, when God's truth is upheld. We've already seen rumblings of this just in the last month or two in our country, haven't we? When news leaked several weeks ago of a possible Supreme Court decision of overturning Roe versus Wade, the next day, that night, there are protests in front of the Supreme Court. What biblical Christians have fought to overturn for decades, we pray will become a reality very soon. But yeah, disturbance is felt among the wicked, among those opposed to God's law when truth is spoken. And now Luke tells us specifically about one of these disturbances. Look at verse 24. One of these disturbances that was being felt for a man named Demetrius... A silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that that from this business we have our wealth. This guy, Demetrius, was a very important man in the city of Ephesus. 
Apparently, he was the head of like the local guild of silversmiths. Like if you wanted to, like a, like a little chamber of commerce of silversmiths, a union, if you will. They were all a band of brothers there. And he speaks to them and says that we have our wealth from making silver shrines for the goddess Artemis. Now, these silver shrines of this goddess is what people worshipped in Ephesus. And this god, goddess named Artemis, also named Diana in the English. By the way, this is a picture of what one of these silver shrines looked like. This one is not silver, but gives you the picture of what that appears to be. These silversmiths made these statues, and they that was their living. That was their wealth. That's how they earned and put food on the table. They capitalized on this. And he gathered all these guys together who were making these things in the city and other people of similar trades and says, you know, this is how we make our living. This is big business in this town. Big business. And they would do this and sell these statues to all the visitors, the guests that were coming into Ephesus. Ephesus was a very popular town and the main town for this goddess called Artemis. If you want to put it in perspective, think of it like this. These guys are in the souvenir business. You know when you visit the Statue of Liberty, they have a, they have a store down at the bottom. And after you visit the Statue of Liberty, you could buy a miniature Statue of Liberty. And that's what they were doing. People would come to Ephesus to see the goddess statue and worship in her temple. And they could buy a souvenir, an idol like this, so they could take home and worship from where they were. By the way, just for food for thought, in 1986, the 100th year anniversary of the Statue of Liberty, I won my elementary school contest of selling the most chocolate Statue of Liberties. Actually, I didn't really do it. My dad took it to his job and sold a bunch, and I was like the hero of the elementary school. Anyway, that has nothing to do with this, but I'm, I'm very proud of that moment in my childhood. <laughs> so these guys are making these statues of Artemis, and Demetrius says, he gets everyone together and says, hey guys, we got to talk. Ephesus is essentially a tourist town for the goddess. It's where pilgrims came to visit her, and they would take home souvenirs. She was a fertility goddess and goddess of wild animals and stuff like that. And, and the history behind her worship is interesting. Apparently, there was a meteorite that fell in Ephesus sometime before this. And the meteorite fell from the heavens, and it hit the ground, and they thought it was Artemis, and so they put the meteorite and worshiped the meteorite as her image. And I believe even made the first statue out of that meteorite there. The temple of Artemis was here as well. It was a very important place and actually was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This is where you would go. It was 220 feet 
by 425 with 127 marble columns 62 feet high. This is an artist's rendition of what it looked like back in the first century. So you go pay your respects to the goddess. You buy a little souvenir idol and go home and hope she blesses you on the way. Again, big business. Almost like you go to Disney World and you come home with the mouse ears on your head. Big business. So Demetri says, guys, we need to do something here. We, this is how we make our living. We've got a problem. What's the problem? Look at verse 26. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. Oh, guys, we have a Paul problem. We have a Christian problem. This guy keeps telling these people that the gods that we make for them are not gods. Can you imagine this guy? Can you believe the goal of what he's trying to tell people? And as a result, guess what? People aren't buying our idols as much. And there's even more Christians every day. And the more Christians there are, guess what? The less customers we have. Because Paul is commanding these people to repent from their idolatry. So we've lost a lot of business. We've lost a lot of money. How dare he do this? And we see a little bit more of the disturbance that happens in Ephesus. What was Paul doing? He didn't do any boycotts or protests or parades or anything like that. He goes in, preaches Christ, preaches the gospel. People get saved, and repentance happens. How? They leave their idols behind. Well, we don't need her anymore. She's just silver, stone, wood. We don't need that. Here we see when the gospel causes a disturbance, we see it in these three ways here in Ephesus. First of all, there's an economic disturbance. Their pocketbooks are affected. And if you ever want to tick someone off, mess with their money. I think we're all in agreement with that, right? Mess with their income, their, their living There's an economic disturbance that's happening here because of the gospel. Secondly, there's a religious disturbance. Of course, their idolatry is affected. This is how they've been brought up. The goddess is the one who blesses us with babies. She's the goddess of fertility. The goddess is the goddess of the animals and and, and warriors. How will we hunt our food the same way if we don't worship her? Hmm. And thirdly, there's a cultural disturbance. Because if Paul keeps preaching Christ and to repent from idolatry, then what would Ephesus become? We're on the map because of this goddess. Everyone comes here to visit us because of the goddess. Tourism would be impacted, wouldn't it? 
We wouldn't have so many visitors. And the less visitors, the less money we're going to have. And it's just not happening here, he says. It's happening all over all of Asia. And the world worships her. And they know that the place to worship her is right here in Ephesus. Now, this is also amazing. Remember earlier in chapter 19, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, and Paul's lengthy stay in Ephesus, his ministry not only affected this city, but remember he took those 12 disciples of John the Baptist, remember that never heard of the Holy Spirit before, those guys, he, they became saved, he baptized them, and he sends them out to preach all over Asia. Now, Asia is not like China, the Orient, we're talking the Roman province of Asia, which is really where modern-day Turkey is today. This is where this is happening. The gospel is exploding, because in 1910, he says this, this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So the problem is just not an Ephesus problem. The problem is this, this Paul keeps making disciples who are making disciples who are making disciples. This is a domino effect across the whole world. We've got to put a stop to him. Hmm. So here's the problem. A tourist city needs tourists. And once you take the reason for people visiting that city out of the equation, it poses a big problem. Can you imagine our area without beaches? That's why people love to come here in our beautiful weather. What, what, what if you took away our great weather? What, what if we flipped it and we got the blizzards and the snow and the below zero temperatures here? All of a sudden, our beaches are all gone and, the, and it snowed more here than it does up north. Guess what? A major part of our economy would be affected here, wouldn't it? People wouldn't want to come here or visit here and move here. A major part of our economy and culture would be affected as Florida is big in the tourist industry. So kind of make some connections there. But the word of God, here's the point. The word of God was prevailing in a way that it threatened the livelihood of the idol makers. This is good news, folks. Why? Because the gospel causes a disturbance. When the word of God prevails, when the glory of God is seen and the fear of God falls upon a place, it causes a disturbance, a splash, a ripple, a tsunami. And Ephesus is being affected as gospel transformation rips idolatry out of people, transforms hearts. When Paul shared the gospel in Ephesus, it didn't sound like this. Believe in Jesus because he has a wonderful plan for your life. That's a false gospel. It is. Or believe in Jesus and you'll be rich, happy, and successful. It was believe in Jesus. It wasn't believe in Jesus and keep living the same way you were before. It was no, believe in Jesus, forsake your sin, repent, and give your allegiance to the risen Christ. This is what Paul says on Mars Hill. Remember in Acts chapter 17? He called those people out of idolatry as well. He says this in Acts 17. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't go in there for the least splashy amount. He goes in there and just speaks the truth. And we see the effects of this, not only in Ephesus, not only on Mars Hill, but we see this also in cities like Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul writes a letter to the Thessalonians. We read this earlier in our scripture reading. And he is commending them. And he says, I know that your faith is legitimate. Your faith is genuine. Why? Look at verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. One of the ways Paul knows that their faith is legitimate is because repentance has manifested itself. How? Idolatry was a big issue back here. When these people are willing to forsake cultural acceptance and cultural fitting in and all that nonsense and to turn to God in spite of the consequences of what the world would do to you to serve God and forsake idols, Paul says, yeah, yeah, your faith is legitimate. I'm reminded of my mother. My mother, um, when she became a Christian, had a similar experience. My mother and my family is from Cuba, and Cubans have a uh, religion called Santeria. Maybe some of you have heard of it. It's a mixture of voodoo and Catholicism. In essence, it's witchcraft and the worshiping of saints. And my mother, growing up as this, as my grandmother raised her, they had idols in the house. You would pray to St. Lazarus and to St. Elizabeth. and to, It's a mixture of Catholicism and voodoo. As Cuba was... Uh, had um, immigrants from Spain and also slaves brought in from over from Africa. So you have the Catholicism and the voodoo from the islands coming in, and they mixed a religion called Santeria. And it's wicked, and it's evil. My mother used to bow down. I remember as a kid going into my grandmother's house, I hated it, hated it, because she would make me kiss all of the saints on the head. My mother became a Christian, and she took all of those saints and threw him in the garbage because she followed and obeyed the command of the Lord to forsake idols and to repent. Praise God for that. That's what we see in Ephesus. That's what we see in Thessalonica. And praise God for the godly upbringing my mother gave me as a child. So we see this in the city. Repentance, repentance, repentance. If your life hasn't changed, How do you know that you really know Christ? 
If you're still living in sin and don't care, oh, it's time to get serious and right with God. So what happens after this meeting? Demetrius meets with these guys. He calls them out, scares them. When they heard this, verse 28, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. So Demetrius starts a riot. If these people are going to disrupt our bottom line, we're going after them. So he riles up the crowd, he riles up the city, causes mass confusion, and they go to where they can ever find Paul and his followers. And the one place they go to is the theater. The theater in Ephesus is still standing today. Here's a picture of it. It was a 25,000-seat structure where a lot of debates and events happened. So after they riled up the people, they went into this building, this place. This is not a drawing. This is still standing today if you go to Ephesus. They went to the theater and found Gaius and Aristarchus, who were companions of Paul, dragged them out of the theater so that they could face the mob violence. Paul sees what's happening. He wants to go in, but is not allowed his disciples and his friends, and even the Asiarchs, who are people, they are keepers of the imperial Roman cult. They're not Christians, but somehow Paul has befriended them, and they have Paul's respect, so they even keep Paul out of there because they know if Paul goes in there, he's going to get beat up or killed. Paul, you got to stay away from there. Paul wants to go in there with his men, and he avoids the mob And avoids the crowd. So you have a riot, mob violence. Whenever you mess with someone's idols, expect to face resistance. You know what something, you know how you could identify what is an idol in your life? Have it taken away from you. And see if you can live without it. What is an idol? Many of you don't worship statues or or small, little case, G gods. But we all have idols. We have idols. Things that take our affection away from God. Things that consume us. Things that we worship. And not even knowingly, maybe subconsciously. And it's taking our attention, our focus away from God. Making us live for the world and not for Christ. Take that away from you and see how you respond. Oh, there's a riot when these people realize that their idols are being taken away. And some of that involved money. Look at verse 32. Now some cried out one thing, some another. This is the mob. They're all screaming and yelling and shouting different things. For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Now this is hilarious. They... Some people see other people run and scream, so they're like, hey, we're going to run and scream too. And then they're like saying, hey, why why are we mad? I don't care. We're just going to join the crowd. Let's just keep screaming and hollering. Some of them didn't even know. Most of them didn't even know why they were even there. Very typical. 
You get a bunch of people together who are mad. The crowd joins them. They start yelling. They don't even know why they're mad, but they just like to be where the action is. Look at verse 33. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, stopping him. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! But the town clerk, when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? That's that meteorite. The town clerk tries to calm things down. He doesn't want trouble in this city. He says to them, You think these guys are going to ruin our our legend? You think these guys are going to Everyone knows what we're famous for. And that we are the keepers of the goddess. And that the sacred stone fell here. No matter what these guys are trying to do, they can't change the facts. Now this guy, he doesn't want the riot. He's not with Paul. But he just doesn't want his town rioting and mobbing and causing all the trouble. Why? Because he'll get in trouble. With who? Rome having uncontrolled crowds and violence and uh, protest in the streets was not something that Rome looked at kindly. So he's trying to calm these people down. Seeing then, verse 36, that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with them have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. What he's saying is this. My job's on the line. You guys have a problem? Take it to court. Stop this nonsense because you guys don't even know why you're even angry. And you're going to make it horrible for the rest of us. You are over-exaggerating. Take it to court. Sue them. If they're guilty, let's be it found out in court. Verse 40, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today. See, he's fearful of his own um, demise, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Here we have a politician with his job on the line, and he's doing everything he can to keep his job. Basically what that is. But even then, in the providence of God, God uses this man that was neither for Paul or against Paul. He just wanted quiet in his city to calm the crowd, to relieve the crowd so that the gospel can continue to go forth and to bear fruit in Ephesus. We see the sovereign hand of God in control here. Look at the first verse of chapter 20. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Now this is something he had already planned earlier in verses 21 and 22. That he was going to visit Macedonia and Achaia, take up a collection so he could bring it to the church in Jerusalem who was very poor. And that's the end of this rioting episode. And what's the point? What's the whole point of this passage? 
Before the gospel begins a disturbance in a city, it disturbs the hearts of God's people. Calling them to believe in Jesus who died on the cross and rose again from the dead. And when this happens, there is great repentance. Repentance is the fruit of the gospel working in our hearts. And here's my prayer for you today. That you would be disturbed. That you would be disturbed. Someone has once said, I think it's either Spurgeon or Calvin, I can't remember. The preacher's job is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. So may you be afflicted over your sin. May you not be comforted. May you repent and turn to Christ. Could you imagine the revival that we would have in Bradenton and Florida and our nation if the hearts of God's people would be stirred up over their own sin first? I pray that we would live in such a way that the gospel is doing its work in us, that it transforms cities. May the city of Bradenton know Northwest Baptist is here. And may every wickedness that prevails in this town, every, every vision of darkness and hate and sin that goes against God's law and attempts to rob God of his glory, that we as God's people would shine God's light on it and expose them and not be fearful, that we would be bold and stand for truth. But before God disturbs a city, he disturbs the hearts of his people. Every revival that has ever started in history has started with God's people repenting of their sin, seeking God in prayer. This is not something we can manipulate from God, but it's our call as Christians to do so, to be disturbed by our own sin. And so God's grace would draw us to himself and renew us and restore us. And may the disturbance flow from our hearts to disturb every wickedness around us so that the city would never be the same. So Manatee County would never be the same. The churches are on fire because they're just preaching truth. They're not entertaining people on their way to hell. If you're a believer who's fallen into sin, I pray that your heart will be disturbed, that you would confess that sin to God and repent. If you're not a believer, that you would be saved today, that you would know that, that Jesus Christ died to absorb the wrath of God on your behalf. He died for you and that your sins can be forgiven if you placed your trust and faith in him, believing in him alone for salvation. May you be disturbed. May Bradenton be disturbed because whenever God is doing a work, it is never comfortable for God's people. May we continue to work and to pray so that every strip club and porn shop and Planned Parenthood is shut down. Amen? May we do whatever we can so that every foster child is placed in a loving home. May we disturb the city in a way that drugs and alcohol and drunks and all of that are on the decline and extinguished. Wouldn't that be great? 
to see that kind of transformation in our city. But you know where it begins? It begins right here. If we're not going to be disturbed, why would our city be disturbed? It begins here. May God do his will for his glory in us. Let's pray and then we will observe the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for this text, this message. Gospel disturbance. We see much that happened in the city of Ephesus, Lord, and we pray that it will happen here. We pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit, convict us of sin. Let us know what we ought to repent from. Magnify the Lord Jesus in our hearts. Lord, you've given us this time of communion to remember Jesus, to remember his death, what he endured, and the consequences of our sin. Lord, we pray that you would do your work in your people now. As you've commanded us to remember you, we will remember you. We celebrate the presence of Christ in this memorial to feed us and to encourage us and to help us live holy lives. Oh God, cause a great disturbance in us. In your name we pray, amen.